0: The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Bayer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development
1: this is a real treat and it's a little bit something different so um josh lowry to my far left uh, and i have been doing a podcast for the past six or eight months i think we're somewhere around episode 10 uh, it's called Energy in Transition, and uh, we're actually going to record that podcast today right. while we're here on stage talking to Matt Gallagher. And so it's a, uh, it's it, it'll be fun. I'm going to turn it over to Josh to get to give a little bit of an intro, then he's going to turn it back over to me, and and we'll pop into the Q and A with Matt.
2: Well, I just want everybody to know that the Energy in Transition podcast is it's supposed to be a combination of traditional. Uh, as uh, you know, Bobby Tudor called it last week, incumbent oil and gas mixed with the, the transition of what we're going into. And it's to bring people that um, are unaware of what's going on into the, all of the different, uh, uh, all of the above uh, ideas and people and players that are here. So if you haven't subscribed to it, I encourage you to look it up on your favorite podcast platform, Energy and Transition Podcast. Uh, and follow Dan and I and a lady named uh, Leslie Beyer, who's the uh, president of the Energy Workforce Technology Council. So it's uh, it's growing. The audience is growing, and we just appreciate the support. So it's good to be here. Josh, thanks for having us at your conference, and Pickering Energy Partners, thank you guys for letting us do this. Awesome. And Energy in
1: Transition, Matt, you're a perfect person to talk about this because um, Matt's bio, I think, is in the is in the program. But uh, Matt now runs a firm called GreenLake Energy capital, energy, energy venture, sorry. And um, so Matt's investing in energy technology and drilling oil and gas wells. So you are living in, in kind of both Correct. worlds, if you will. So, Matt, maybe just give us a quick background on yourself. You know, where'd you grow up? Why are you doing this? I saw in your bio third generation petroleum engineer. Um, do you think? Do you think Grandpa's rolling over in his grave with some of the things you're investing in, or would he would he look at this and say amazing? And then tell us a little bit about Green Lake.
3: I'd say Grandpa specifically might be rolling over in his grave. He was pretty uh, old school. He graduated 1937 uh, from Pittsburgh Petroleum Engineering, but at the same time he was an entrepreneur, so that uh, that has a lot of overlap here. Uh, but he he drilled wells all across the country uh, in the in montana and the north park basin in colorado uh and then my dad and his four brothers actually started running the business um, and my dad was the only petroleum engineer of the four uh so i uh, had interesting dinner time conversations with him and then one of those was whatever you do don't become a petroleum engineer so i went i went that route um and it it Played out well, uh, because basically it was, it was what I loved. I grew up in, in Indiana, southern Indiana, so there was there's actually s- shallow oil fields there and in the Illinois basin, uh, shallow water floods. And then went to school, Colorado School of Mines, uh, because it was the only place I could play football with uh, that had petroleum engineering, so I couldn't cut it at any of the Texas schools. Uh, went out to the School of Mines to play there, and then uh, once I we graduated, went to, went to Pioneer Natural Resources out of Dallas and uh, started the career there and then jumped over to Parsley Energy in 2010 and there were about five of us so we could have fit on this stage and then uh, grew it from there and it was a a heck of a run. We were uh, fortuitous in the EOG and others started drilling horizontal wells in 2012 in Erion County and we were able to catch that wave and uh, we merged that back into Pioneer Natural Resources that's when I had the opportunity to, uh, to reboot, restart, and that's where the idea of GreenLake came from and wanted to have, kind of play hokey pokey and have one foot in, in both sides. And, and
1: so talk to us about what that means. Are you a venture capital guy on the, the, the energy transition area, or you call it energy technology? So what's, what's that part of the
3: business mean? It's, it's fledgling uh, and it looks new or different every month. Uh, hopefully it's a little bit more refined now than it was in February of 2021. Uh, but yeah, it's more on the venture side. So less things that you can look at the future cash flows and hang your hat on the forecast and it's more upstarts and ideas. And But what we're seeing in, in our benefits and what we've done at GreenLake is a lot more of the adjacent industries where we are where we 're making the investments, so uh, software back end uh, has been good a lot of this automation that can help reduce your your energy consumption, uh, reduce downtime in the field, uh, as well as some Bitcoin overlap uh, that are using natural gas uh, for for the generation of the power um, and then we 've looked at some emission control items so uh, we looked at a lot, those are, the, those are kind of more of the three investment side of things that, that we've done, but you know, we, we are by no means experts, so we're just trying to get in with good people, with, with great ideas that have adjacencies to, to old school fossil.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you, what do you think about energy transition? I mean, are you a net zero, 2050 believer? Do you, do you think we have to do this? What's the, what's
3: the rationale for, for putting money in this space? I think we have to get better. Uh, so at the end days of Parsley, uh, we really made a commitment going back to 2017 and we internally, and we shifted and became pretty vocal about that commitment, 2019 and 2020, about where the oil and gas companies, the E&P companies could go. So that, I think, uh, was early days, and I think you're gonna see throughout this decade, Um, a lot more results and impacts from that, from the traditional, you know, the majors and the European majors kind of led it, but even the U.S. E&P. So I think it's here, I think it's a have to have, and I think we have to get better. And along that comes a lot of new technologies, a lot of new investment opportunities, and you're seeing all of these firms take, dip their toe in the water with different partnerships. Um, We're all trying to find out what can, where is our expertise that we can, can leverage? So seeing those opportunities back in the early days Uh, meant I wanted to play in that space um, just with with our personal portfolio. So that's kind of what what kicked that off. I think it's here to stay. I think it's growing and I think both sides though are important. I'm definitely an advocate for for uh, I guess the incumbent fossil but definitely an advocate for the energy transition as well. When You
1: talked about Parsley, and you're on several boards, right? You're on the Chesapeake board, you're on the Pioneer board now. Um, So do you think energy transition investments, are they, or ESG, do you think that's a, is it a check the box because investors want it? Is it a, we can make money doing this? Is it an inevitability? How do you, I mean, tell us about the big
3: company mindset. Is it for real? Sure. Uh, well, first, I'll, I'll tell a quick story about the Chesapeake Board. So, fortunate enough on that board to work with Tim Duncan, who was on the panel before us, a uh, true rock star. And when I told my family I was first working with Tim Duncan, they said, Oh, can you get his autograph? And I said, No, <laughs> not that Tim Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> but now that he's kind of a CCUS leader, maybe I should get his autograph. There you go. He's still here. Could I'll be gonna, worth something. Gonna hunt you down. Um, but no, those, those boards are, are great. Uh, are a great lens into what two leading US E&Ps are doing. And uh, I actually had an, an investor, this was 2019, a roadshow in Chicago, a large, a large firm. They were in the top 20 at the time. And they said, um, sorry, it was 2018, and, because we didn't have our first sustainability report yet. And they said, can you get this sustainability report out there? I said, well, we're, we're staffing up, we're, um, we're doing the back-end analysis. It's just gonna take us a while to get the, these numbers all compiled. And they said, can't you just get a couple of interns? I mean, we just need to check the box. Exact, exact term. That was 2018. Uh, top 20 ENP and investor as a generalist that had other investments as well. Well, that shifted quickly um, to where now you look at the SEC and you look at the big four and they're looking at auditing You know, the, the numbers that are in these sustainability reports and the promises that are being made. Uh, so these firms uh, are, are being prepared for that. They're getting, they're taking it uh, seriously. They're looking at how can this actually benefit our business. This is table stakes now uh, to be an operator, and anything that we're going to commit to, that we're going to measure, we want to be the best. So the things that get measured get improved, and then uh, the things you focus on, you, you want to be the best at. So I think they're 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 grabbing the bull by the horns and and trying to be leaders. And I think I think both of those are. So it's. It's uh, it's really pervasive that, uh, when you look at the new hires throughout those organizations that are really staffing up in, in uh, all things transition, all things documentation, all things implementation of ESG. So it's it's the real deal.
2: You kind of answered my question. I was going to say, you know, are you a forward thinker in this? And Dan's question, is it here to stay? But it really <laughs> like you're, here? I mean, we know this to be true because we're in this room, we're seeking this information out, but how many of your peers that are, you know, that aren't seeking this out that aren't do you see them falling by the wayside do you see that you are like, hey you need to be paying attention to kind of what we're talking about in the lobby are people that aren't paying attention to this are you trying to rattle them a little bit saying start listening
3: especially on things uh that have a, a global view such as flaring so definitely tried to rattle some cages uh to say that we shouldn't have it in the state of texas uh we should uh, we have the opportunity the infrastructure, um, the planning the foresight, uh, the collaboration with the utilities and the, our midstream partners that that we can we can uh, eradicate flaring and we should be kind of the the gold medal for uh, the industry uh, globally and not a black eye and there was a black eye a few years ago um, you saw we bought a company that was flaring up, upwards of twenty percent and it took us. Four million dollars and uh, about four months uh, to get that sub two percent. So it takes just concentrated effort um, and it takes a focus. I think everybody has rallied behind flaring. Um, I wish you could be as dramatic on the other things, um, but I don't think it will be. I don't think they'll be left behind if they have great rock quality. If um, if they're doing if they're doing the rest of their operations okay, they're going to skirt by, but they're going to be mid pack and um, they're not going to be top decile. But there are a few things: uh, lowering, lowering your flaring, lowering your methane uh, emissions. Uh, everybody's got to be on board in that in that respect. You mentioned you
1: mentioned flaring. <clears throat> Did you believe that before or after you bought the emissions company? I'm I'm teasing. Um, but talk a little bit about the investments that you're making on on the venture side. Are you deploying? Is this a half a million dollar things? Are they? You know, do you have to put 10 million dollars into companies to to really get exposure to this sort of new energy technology
3: i think surprisingly on our side uh, all these investments are in the half a million dollar range uh so there's opportunity and and some of those have the appetite for um 50 to 100K, and they're looking for partners that that have overlapping experience that that uh, can influence the development of their product, influence um, you know what are the real operational challenges they're seeing. So I'd I'd recommend to anyone out there um, there's ways to break into this and, and be helpful. Um, it's early on, um, but but we're focused on anything kind of continuous. So. Uh, the spot in time you know we, we did not make any investments in any of the satellite or any of the um, or any of the air flyovers type of things for on, emissions on emissions mm-hmm. um, uh, because even satellites you know maybe it's once every 24 hours um, on it that's on a good one um, so that's that may not be enough but um, on the continuous side that's when you can really um, get ahead of something, you can see a leak right away, uh, you can pump through AI, and you can reroute a truck out there immediately. But I think there's opportunities. Um, these things, once they have to go to scale, they're gonna need much more uh, dollars behind them than, than we have at GreenLake on the transition side. But um, I think there's opportunities across the capital stack and, and the size for everybody to kind of get in.
1: Mm-hmm. And And we've seen a lot of, you know, traditional venture capital, there's the discussion about how that's imploded, and there's a lot of headlines about um, down rounds and, and challenges for, for companies that maybe were ahead of themselves. Is that same thing happening in energy venture, if you will, or are you seeing a lot of competition to deploy capital and therefore valuations? Or, I mean, how would you describe valuations?
3: Uh, this is where I'm going to show my novice side. Um, I think valuations are ridiculous, even in the ones that that we've invested in. We're not focused. So you're paying, on you're paying, paying up stupid money to, to. I think yeah, yeah. When you look at, if you take the gross eight eights valuation they're putting on that, but we're trying to see, you know, what can you push through that, you know, they're putting in ten, twenty of these things that will end up being ten thousand, two hundred thousand across the across. So if you get it wrong in this next. Two or three years—that's not the—that's not the time frame we're focused on, um, and we don't have enough sway or, or to to move the valuation. So it's, hey, do we want to participate right. or not? Right. So still expensive.
1: Still expensive. Yeah. But you're yeah. but but you're paying anyway. Wait, it's so in, good. Anyways,
3: the we, coffee's so good. You'll pay eight bucks. Or yeah. is it is it FOMO? Um, you know, I, I'd say that there's a bit of FOMO, but also I think that. Um, I see an opportunity where we can influence the outcome, and that's exciting for our team. So, um, so we're taking, putting a few chips on the table. Yep. You've
1: you got more than a few chips on the table on the oil and gas side. Right. So uh, tell, us, tell us what you're doing and, and kind of how you got there because I remember talking to you a couple years ago and your view for Green Lake was, we're gonna do it ourselves. This is just gonna be me and some friends and family. And then the next thing I know, you got a big commitment from private equity. So walk us through your your kind of thought process from family company to a bigger thing.
3: Yeah. No, the the ideal situation was to stay private, and and we are private, but to stay totally backed uh, by myself and our partners. Um, And we had, this was, I mean, you're talking February, March, 2021. Our first dollars out of the door on a leasehold were March of 2021. And we're looking at, and since that day, we have been sprinting to get that development online. And thankfully, or knock on wood, uh, we're gonna be putting that uh, pad online in September 22nd. So here in, in two more weeks. So um, I don't know that you, we could have done it any quicker when you go through the um, permitting, uh, the pooling phase, procuring the rig, procurement and drilling, uh, it all went, went well. And where is this? Uh, this is in Pecos County, Delaware Basin, uh, in the Permian Basin. So, when people say, "Can U.S. shale respond by this winter?" I mean, here's an opportunity. Someone getting started in March of last year, and production is not coming online until September. Um, if it would have only been that project, I think we could have we could have snuck by on our own. But the word got out, and we got some traction, so we were able to pick up four or five more units, high interest units, each one we kind of look at a project and, and just the numbers got, got too large. So we partnered with uh, a firm that I had relations with going back to 2004, um, but I'm still skeptical with anything private equity. So um, we have some controls in there um, where we get to keep family operations, um, but, uh, but it's gone great so far. So that was a $200 million commitment through NGP. And uh, we also, Chris Carter and his group over there are really insightful and have been great partners. Uh, we still have some friends and family in, in on this development. They've been, they've been key to all of this. Um, but since we started op, uh, drilling operations in January and we've, we've deployed $90 million of capital just in, in eight months time. So it's, um, the, do- the magnitude of the dollars is much different and that just required you know yep. some different, different partners.
1: I do think that, I mean that's,
3: Your grandpa would roll over in his
1: grave if he heard things like ninety million dollars in you know nine nine months. months, And um, so, I mean, the game the game's certainly different than it than it used to be. Talk to us a little bit about. I mean, you're you are real time, real world drilling wells, completing wells. Um, Is it is it getting more expensive, less expensive? I mean, everybody, inflation's a cool thing to
3: talk about. Are we seeing it in the oil patch? We're seeing it big time at at Green Lake, small company. So uh, when you when we do fresh spot pricing, we do have some some contracts in place through March of next year. But if we were to build a spot priced AFE today, it's 40% higher year over year than last year. So you're looking at the public companies are saying 10 to 20%. Well, they have staggered they have long-term pipe contracts and staggered contracts that have some back-end pricing. So if if you were to start fresh today you're looking at a 40% uplift. Uh, the casing, all the steel tubulars, you know, Ukraine took 20% of the OCTG off the market. You're seeing, we were talking about the uh, the manufacturing input through the natural uh, through the gas Europe. in Europe. Uh, well, that's feeding through the whole system. Uh, our cement has gone up quite a bit. Labor, which spiked, I would say, in the first quarter of this year, has been uh, right-sized, has been relatively... Uh, uh, Fixed uh, because we 're not seeing that steep slope in the rig reactivation, so labor has plateaued um, on on the cost side, but the well, steel over two gas is going to get even worse it's a, yeah it's going to yeah. get worse, so what are we going to do there so um, there's not there's not clear visibility to this this pricing structure plateauing, and, and I think you're seeing that in the rigs rig, rigs rolling over, so the last six weeks we've seen a decline in in rig count, so um you know, Why do you think that's happening? You've got this front month, prompt month, increase to, you know, peaked around $120 crude. Uh, we're looking at $88 crude now, but, but you have a steep backwardation. You have all these yellow, uh, yellow and even red light signaling from administrations and investors. Uh, I just had pulled up on my phone last Friday, a uh, subscription service uh, I uh, subscribed to, RapidAn Energy, did four summary policy uh, items that came through that week, weekly bullets. You're talking California, 35-foot offset rule. You have um, a potential odds that they're going to ban exports of products from the U.S., uh, so that would greatly uh, obviously drop U.S. pricing and increase global pricing. And two other uh, major restrictive policies uh, just proposed in one week. So I think you have a softening crude environment, due to the SPR releases uh, that have been hitting the tail end of the curve, increasing inflation, and all these red lights uh, from the policy side. It's really hard to invest into. So is that does that change? You're, you're
1: getting ready to turn on your first project. How long does your project last? And I mean, are you thinking maybe I shouldn't do something, or it's just getting tougher?
3: It's just getting tougher. Uh, and we've looked at some larger deals over this summer. And we could not underwrite the curve um, because of this uncertainty. Um, we've looked at accelerating a rig. Uh, so we have the inventory where we could um, use two rigs through next summer and accelerate those wells. Um, but again, it would put us all on the spot pricing on the tubulars. So it actually would not, you'd capture the front end of the curve and then you'd offset it with your cost increases. So we can't, it's not economically beneficial for us to accelerate. I want I want to pause and
1: re-emphasize or make sure I understand. So there was a time period not that long ago where if I told you $88 a barrel, we'd be doing high fives and cartwheels off the stage. And how quickly can I drill something? What, so what you just said is front month or front part of the curve which slopes down toward 70 over time. So in 70 dollar environment, accelerating
3: at today's cost does not generate the returns that you need that's right that's right and that but that's I wouldn't capture I think seventy dollar crude is still plenty um, plenty economic it's just that the spot price for in the next three to six months for physically getting the equipment you're robbing from somebody else and and you're yeah on the two we were side. at the the happy hour welcome for
2: this for the um, uh Pickering. Uh, party last night, we talked to a couple gentlemen that said that any excess inventory that they had left over from any slowdown is now gone. And material, just getting material is impossible, and people want it immediately. So, again, raw material pricing or raw material unavailable, uh, manufacturing equipment unavailable. So, it's the pricing is just extraordinarily high and unavailable.
3: Not, yeah, exactly. And not only that, so we're making commitments on the ESG front. And a lot of the partners that came along with us to develop. Um, with Green Lake uh, thought that was important. I believe it's important, and so we're going to stick to it. Well, the PME, a primary meter connect uh, to drop electricity down to energize our facility, Uh, we put that order in with uh, TNMP in about, about, uh, I guess it would have been August of last year, and I bet our field supervision a steak dinner that it was not going to be ready because there's kind of a history with the utilities. Um, so they the first delivery was set I think back in June and uh, they they pounded the table they said uh, where were you, where are you buying me that steak dinner and then they got the email and it got delayed and it got set last week um, but the energy is still not energized so you still have to have another crew come out and drop the energy uh, to our transformer bank our line um, so again, if we want to accelerate, do we even have the electrical infrastructure needed so that we're not flaring? Right. Um, so that's, uh, there's all these components that go into it. And it's just restarting the energy, I mean, the uh, the engine of the economy. It's not just our industry. No, it's, uh, it's everything. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, how does,
1: how does what you just described play into, where do you think U.S. production goes um, from a, an oil and gas perspective. Can we, if folks can't accelerate, energy security is being discussed and you know the president's asking for more supply, um, what's our production gonna do? I mean, expectations are we'll go back to peak levels of, of US production. Can we do it?
3: Let's see, that put us at 13.3 million. That was February of 2020. Um, I think we'll get there over the next decade. I said at that time uh, that I'm never going to see it in my lifetime, uh, so I was a little dramatic. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think we're in 500,000 a year. So we're still growing. That's the good news. And I think it's healthier growth. It's more durable growth, And but it's just can, can we respond to a dramatic—can we displace 10 million barrels a day uh, of Russia overnight? No. And that's the, the hard and fast answer. But um, I, I put us at about 500,000 barrels a day of growth um, over the next decade, so that's another 5 million. You're saying per year? Yep, per year. So I think we get to um, 15 to 17 million. 15 million. to 17 million. So 10 million is the bogey, and, the, and it's all of the Permian. Uh, the rest of the basins, they're they're growing month over month right now, but I don't think they'll get much past their peak uh, 2019. So... The Permian bogey is uh, over-under is 10 million barrels a day, and I, I'm taking the under to about 9 million. Wow. 9 million okay. or so. And you're,
1: you're getting ready to turn on your first pad. Talk to us, what's, what's, um, what's Green Lake going to be in three years, production-wise?
3: Yeah. So we, since we're running a one-rig model, it gets kind of finally self-funding last year uh, next year, um, and that kind of plateaus around 10,000 BOE a day. Um, so well, that's net to Green Lake. You got to put the twenty-five uh, percent royalty owners on top of that, so twelve five, and then uh, another ten percent. Uh, so you're about thirteen five uh, gross boe per day uh, is what you can deliver. And that one one rig program, one rig, and we're kind of. I would call us. I don't know everybody's definition of core and tier one and fringe. Um, we're we're kind of tier one and fringe. It's hard to it's hard to. Uh, to elbow your way back into the core, um, so if you, the core rigs, they could probably deliver 15 to 17.5 boe a day on a, on a stabilized basis. Um, so that's that's from scratch. We had zero base production, and we're just growing up to that 10,000. Uh, of course, that's drilling new new inventory. Um, that peak should last uh, two years, and then that peak goes on a decline.
1: Mm-hmm. Um so US oil production goes up in your in your estimation but it's hard to do and it's hard to go faster I, i'm i'm grappling with this with this issue of you can't add another rig if you can't add another rig is that you know how are we going to start adding this half a million barrels a day unless oil prices go up or well costs
3: come down uh, exactly i mean I, I think if you see you know policy easing or policy clarity and the tail of the curve come up, miraculously, we fi- everybody finds a way to add, add rigs, um, especially the private guys. But again, the private guys don't have the inventory. We're building things uh, a little differently than the public. So yes, we reactivated. We're over 50% of the rig count now, but that's about a 24-month vignette. Uh, and, then, and then it should, that window starts closing, I believe. Uh, so it's a, it's a real challenge, um, especially on the crude side. Talk about natural gas, easier? I think that's, that's a different story. That's all. Uh, the inventory is definitely there. It's been artificially constrained, well, not artificially, market constrained due to pricing over the last five years of the last decade. Um, you know, you're looking sub-$3 gas, and then you have the basis netbacks, um, so people probably weren't going to grow into that environment. Um, but then due to that, you weren't getting the new pipelines passed are engaged, then you see uh, policy restrictions on new pipelines so now, when you have the price signal uh, if your nine dollar gas is definitely a price signal uh, you can you can move into that world, uh, grow into that world, uh, but there's no infrastructure from from the key basin the Marcellus to grow out of so that's that's a basin that has a hundred years of of inventory, uh, a good uh, twenty years of material growth depending you know you pick your growth Percentage and uh, if there's pipelines there, it can handle it, and it's all policy restricted right now. So, the gas is a different story. So, you think are we going to? I mean, we're
1: a 12 BCF a day LNG exporter. You think that's going up?
3: I, I couldn't agree more with um, with Toby Rice's plan, uh, and I think I had a tweet back in March calling on people to act now um, to get these LNG plants get the going. And now we're six months behind. There's been there's been progress with, but most of that progress was already commercially available um, or commercially in flight projects, uh, and it's just matching up the partners there. We still have not seen any any real progress on true pipeline infrastructure. So if we want to be an ally to Europe, if we want to be an ally as West and displace. Um, some of this Russian gas uh, we're already we're another six months behind nobody has done anything material there's been no strategic sovereigns that have come over and, and really asked and 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 there's no, been no domestic uh, administration um, engagement it, it's been uh, maybe a one uh, an ask followed up by uh, the next day with these four or five every week of restrictions uh, of hurdles uh, to getting this done so it's a, it's a real challenge, I think people need to get serious about it. Toby
1: says 50 BCF a day of gas exports. That's gonna solve the kind of global gas dynamic. Um, that's a big move from 12 BCF a day today. Um,
3: is that physically possible? I think you gotta aim high, uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I don't know if that, I mean, I think it is physically possible. But it's not practically possible even with full full engagement. but if you if you aim there and you come up short at 30, um, it's uh, better than aiming for 30 and landing at 20. So mm-hmm. I think uh, I think it's it's the right message and and people have to have to respond and get engaged. And not only that it's a great it's a great transition fuel. I mean you look at the US. leading on emissions reduction over the last uh, Twenty years, and natural gas has been a big part of that. Uh, the transition to combined cycle electrical plants. So, um, it, it's a good partner to to wind to to solar. Um, looking at a lot of the stuff coming out of Thundersed, uh research. Uh, Rob West, uh, excellent excellent mind, and somehow he got the data over you know a year at, by the second. And has mapped the has mapped the average on time of solar and of wind, and it's surprising the the um, volatility even during the sunny times uh, on solar. I guess you have you have clouds, you have heavy winds, different things, and dust. Um, so you need you need a partner in crime, I guess, and and natural gas is a good is a good partner to both of those renewable uh, solutions. We don't mention the word crime. Here uh, on, I, on the Energy and Transition podcast. I think I cringed when I said well, that. Well, yeah. yeah. So
2: there's, there is information on that on one of our previous guests on the podcast, too. So, Great. for what it's worth.
3: Crime? Or yeah. <laughs> yeah, just
2: some of the, uh, the,
1: the Intermittency. Solar, yeah. Yes. Yeah, intermittency. So, clearly, you think that we have good inventory depth for natural gas. Uh, we hear a lot, the investors are thinking a lot about inventory quality on the oil side. Um, some, some fear that, you know, wells are getting starting to get worse. For a long time they got better. There's
3: fear they're getting worse. Do you think they are? I mean, you're drilling some. Yep. Um, it's all about spacing. So we really have to, as an industry, dial in spacing. We saw um, you know, uh, the, the, we had a ba- uh, Bates pad that was way too dense. We tried three. We. Who, we. Oh, sorry. Parsley Energy had a 330 foot. This was Sponsored, uh, this was a crime, you know, sponsored by me. I wanted to see what the what the limit and the extents were And we tried in the wolf camp a and b three thirty-foot spacing and three thirty-foot stacks And uh, that was that was by all means a disaster Um, We recovered the same uh, oil in the first Year that we could have recovered from just drilling. That was an eight-well project We could have got that out of out of about four wells So once you go too dense you fall off a cliff, and and we've seen uh, the industry upspace, especially after the uh, the dominator was probably more more popular than our Bates pad. Um, DOMINATOR was Concho. Concho? Yes. Uh, so uh, people took took notice and they upspaced. But um, it, you all that time during that time you're fighting uh, you're still spi- fighting parent-child offset, frac hits. Um, so there's a lot of challenges out there. So, I think you, over time, you want to continue to look at, at you know, drilling one less well, not one more well per unit, uh, because the, the recovery response is not linear. You know, you could fall off a cliff by putting in one too many wells. So, um, I think that's, that's the name of the game. If you get spacing right, your productivity can, can plateau for a longer period of time. Um we are seeing, I mean, you look at just the global the the IEA productivity by basin. every single basin of the big four has reduced in productivity over the last twelve months. Um that could be a lot of things um, uh, but uh, but I think it's something we gotta we gotta look at and and maybe uh, take a few more sticks out of the ground. Get some tweets over there?
1: I do. So not tweets, but I, I do have a couple of incoming texts, one, one that, that's consistent. It says, um, what can the Texas Railroad Commission do to encourage more sustainable oil and gas production, and what should the administration do to encourage LNG exports? So what can, what kind of
3: help can we get from government or regulatory entities? Um. Texas Railroad Commission, I actually commend them. I was um, actually, you know, voted ag- uh, against uh, or for one of the competitors who was more vocal on flaring uh, in the last Railroad Commission race. Uh, but since then, the person that came in uh, has actually embraced that platform and has pushed um, for, A, education, which is key about what the real requirements are, and, B, let's reduce flaring. So a uh, big Big uh, turnaround there and, and lots of kudos uh, on on that front there uh, to Jim Wright um, but I would say um, the railroad commission, if they wanted to be more strict, um, you know you have to you have to put in a bunch of things they could have integration with the um, we could have permitting integration with what I just mentioned with the utilities or with the pipelines, make sure that you have a pipeline to a facility before you get um, be, there could be a facility permit. Uh, I'd hate to add more paperwork. I'm just thinking out loud here, so I'm probably going to regret that. Um, but uh, but that's the way we do it. Uh, we we make sure we have the before we go and spud. We've had we at least have the commitment from the the midstream and from the the utility providers. And of course, what I already mentioned, the challenges even after you have the commitment. Uh, so that's one thing they could look at uh, from the from the federal side and from the policy side on. On LNG, we've got a lot of work to do, and and there's, it's just do not add additional um, limitations. Uh, the EIA, I'm sorry, the um, um, EPA uh, has just um, put two two more stringent requirements on on the likes of Chenier and others on on some of their uh, big compression emissions, and that's solely, uh, you know, in the near term uh, going to target the capability of LNG capacity. So. We've got to phase those in in the proper timing. Uh, not not tomorrow. If that's something that's identified and important, they, let's put a 20-30 time frame on that, or let's put a. Uh, but you have you have the president saying we're in wartime. Why aren't we responding? In the left hand or on the microphone, and then on the behind the scenes, you have all these uh, additional things coming at us uh, and the industry tomorrow. So. Um, they just need to put the proper time frame with long enough lead time. The industry and everybody in this room and the investors we saw before is, are going to solve those problems. We just need some time. Matt, you're you're a
1: petroleum engineer, but you're investing in energy technology, etc. Um, you've had a great career in the oil and gas business. What what advice do you give young people thinking about the energy industry today?
3: So I bet I think the. Uh, the global message to every all the young people today are exactly what my dad 's message to me was. He, he said, "Do not become a petroleum engineer and <laughs> and I went against his grain and it turned out okay so uh, I think people you know if they have a global appetite, they like um, they like interacting with the world, they like human flourishing, they like doing things that are good for the planet or, i mean good for uh, especially people. Um, i'd say i 'd say look into oil and gas uh, in oil and gas you 're going to have the opportunity uh, to drive outcomes in the transition um, and you 're going to have a real you 're going to understand things subsurface um, so it 's not lost but it has to be a passion uh, of theirs. They have to be interested in it um, and if that 's not the case, um, take a couple of miners in it and then and then go the energy go the business route. Um, go the transition route because that's that obviously is going to be a growing a growing field for a long time to come
1: so. mm-hmm. We could go another forty five minutes, but we can 't and so uh, one of the fixtures of our energy and transition podcast is the lightning round oh, right so Josh, are you ready to just pepper so i 'm ready matt you do you you don 't get to Expound on these answers. You just get to say yes, no, or answer. Word so, answer. Okay. Um, with mm-hmm. that, kick us off, Josh. Franklin's Barbecue or Luling's Barbecue? Franklin's. House of the Dragon or Rings of
3: Power? House of the Dragon. Austin or Midland? I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Austin. <laughs>
1: Will the world make net zero by 2050?
2: No. Wind or solar? Um, Hmm.
3: I'm going to go solar.
2: Baseball or football? Football. S&P 500 for the rest of 2022, bullish or bearish? Bearish.
1: (laughs) Cash or crypto? Crypto. Whataburger or In-N-Out? Arby's. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Arby's. It stands for America's Roast Beef. Yes, sir. That is true. Um, puppies or kittens?
2: Puppies. ENP stocks or tech stocks? ENP.
1: And I'm going to wrap us up with the question I always ask: Will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? You probably get this answer a lot. No. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One guy made him happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, nine no's and yeah. one yes. I'll, I'll f- remember that forever. Matt, thank you so much. Right. Thanks That's to fun. the audience for your questions. We really appreciate it. Yep. Matt Gallagher, let's give him thank a round you. of applause. Yeah. Thank you, buddy.
2: Thank you.